Okay, that's enough greeting. No more speaking to each other. Uh, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. If I don't know you, hi Connie. If I don't know you, my name is Marley. I'm on staff here at SBC. Um, I work in the office a couple days a week. Um, if you are a new visitor with us, there is a little visitor card in the seat pocket in front of you. Just has a bunch of information about us, who we are, what we believe, um, our mission statement. And we also have um, just various ways for you to get plugged in. And we also, um, in more detail, we have an app. Um, if you go Android or Apple, which is superior. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, if you go to the App Store <laughs> and search SVC Truckee, you can find our app, and that'll just give you um, a plethora of ways to get connected. Um, go ahead on there, and you can get us um, Nope, we can get you connected into somewhere where you belong. Um, or you can come find one of us on staff or Pastor Brad Beers is running our hospitality team. If you find one of his people, they'd be more than happy to direct you um, to wherever you are needed and wherever we need you. <laughs> um, as far as announcements, we have another baby shower tomorrow. Um, this one is for Lacey and Wesley Colburn. They're welcoming their first little baby, little baby boy, Heath. Um, his due date is Valentine's Day, but his mama is praying that he comes out sooner than that. <laughs> she is ready. <laughs> so that'll be tomorrow night in Ray Hall, 6 o'clock. Um, if you feel so inclined to bless them with something off their list, they are registered at babylist.com. And you can just search their name in there. And then um, the only other announcement I have for you guys, we have our Night to Shine event coming up on Friday, February 10th. This is a really sweet and special way um, to just bless our friends in the special needs community. Um, February 10th, this isn't just happening at our church, it's happening at churches all across America. Um, and they are throwing the most incredible prom night for our friends in that community. And if that's something that you feel like the Lord is putting on your heart to help out with that, um, Marlise would love to have you <laughs> connect with her um, to get plugged in in any way you can, or even just be a prayer warrior for that event and um, anything that they need. Um, if you're interested in being a part of it, like I said, you can find Marlise. She is here, um, and she'd be happy to connect with you on that. And then um, before we have Pastor Jesse come up here. We have a little info video on that night to shine for you. You know what? COVID can cancel a lot of things, but it can't cancel worth and value and love for people.
Where is, uh, there she is, Marlies, why don't you just stand up real quick so everyone can see. This is Marlies right here. Say hi to her. Yeah. I'm Jesse, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, nice to meet you. I get to preach here for the most part. It's a blessing to be part of this church and, and a great team. Marlies actually um, helps facilitate uh, a bunch of, uh, of these special kids, man, and, and young adults and adults even. And uh, th- there was a period of time during COVID they had nowhere else to meet. And during COVID, they would meet here. Was it twice a week? Twice a week, man. And, and just to be able to come outside, take a break from studying the Bible and hang out with these guys uh, and gals is pretty special. There's one in particular who used to see me at the gym every single week. And he would, uh, when he first met me, he, he saw me lifting and he asked if I was Randy Macho Man Savage. And I was like, yes, I am. Uh, and then the best part was once he started seeing what I was lifting, he then walked over like, if you were Randy Macho Man Savage, you would do the whole stack. So. I was Randy for a little while. Oh, yeah, brother. Okay. Hey, um, let's get into uh, the Bible. But before we do... Uh, I want to introduce you to someone and inform you on a little bit about our church. So while I do this, if you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. You can use one of ours. You can take it home if you need to own one, if you want one, or if you know someone that needs it. These are for free, for sure. Uh, But we're turning to Mark chapter 14, uh, so turn there. And we are a church that's elder-led with what we call a first among equals. That's just a fancy way of saying we're elder-led and we recognize that the lead pastor has a little bit more of an influence just by the position that he has. But the elders help us facilitate and lead and love and care for our church. And on occasion, we bring new guys onto the team, uh, onto that elder team to help us lead and and make decisions for the church and all of that. And so I want to introduce you to someone that most of you, I think, know. But Mike Harrison, (laughs) Harrison, I got it right. I almost second-guessed myself. I called him Harrison the first one. Mike Harrison, welcome Mike. This is Mike. Say hi to Mike. Um, so Mike, what, one of the things when we look for someone as an elder or a shepherd, we're looking for somebody who's already doing that, who's already shepherding people. And Mike has shown a true heart to shepherd men. He uh, does our men's breakfast currently, which meets every other Sunday or twice a month next door. Uh, he helps facilitate our mags groups, which are for you guys that are looking to go deeper in the the word and deeper in relationship. And so we've seen uh, God's hand on him. And he's been interning as an elder for close to a year now. It might be over a year, actually, at this point. And, uh, and so we're bringing him before you. And what we do is we say, hey, we want to bring Mike on the team. However, we know that that, that is not a, a light ask. It's a heavy ask. And we want that to be transparent and accountable. And so what we do is we bring him up in front of you before doing that. We say, hey, if you know of a reason why Mike should not be an elder for sin reasons or anything else, we would say first thing you do is follow the Matthew principle. Go talk to Mike 101. So this is Mike standing up here going, this will be fun, right? So if that's the case, you go to him 101. And if you handle it and it works out, that's the way it should work. That's the way that that it should be. But on occasion, that doesn't always happen. Uh, And so... Uh, in my tenure, and as long as I've been here, close to 20 years, I don't think th- uh, we've ever had a guy that was in question, but uh, then hopefully you can handle it. And if not, the elders would step in. 
And then in two weeks' time, if nothing comes forward uh, and you've handled your business between you and Mike, we're going to have him come forward with the other elders. We'll lay hands on him, and he'll officially become part of our elder team, part of your shepherding team. Amen? All right. So find him afterwards. Thanks, buddy. Love you. Nice haircut. Yeah, he fits in. He's got to get a bigger beard, but after that, he'll be all right. You got two weeks to grow a beard. That's actually what this time is. Two weeks to grow a beard before you become an elder. Wife says no. Jesus says yes. So. Aha! <laughs> got her. Just kidding. Let me take you back to 1999. Can I do that? How many of you remember 1999? There's a few songs about 1999. Party like it's 1999, right? That was the year my father, I think, purchased like 50 of those storage buckets with rice and non-perishable food because all the computers were going to crash, right? You remember that? The crash of Y2K. Didn't happen, by the way. So 1999, I just want to share this because it'll it'll tie in with the message this morning, give you a little bit of an illustration. 1999, it's about two years removed from graduating high school. I went down to uh, the Sacramento area to play football. That was my only goal. That's all I really cared about at the time. Didn't care about education. Uh, And during that season, right, those of you who know and remember, my parents became Christians when I was 12. And growing up was kind of rough, you know, because we were unchurched, really. And at that age of leaving college, for leaving for college, was the first time that I had to try to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus on my own? That it's not a relationship with my mom <clears throat> or my mom's relationship with God or my father's relationship with God. But what, what's my relationship with God going to look like? And unfortunately, I decided to take a little bit of a turn and I kind of put my back uh, against God. I, p- I turned my back to him. And I began to drink heavily and party heavily and, and all of that. And, and um, <clears throat> I was still trying to find a church, though. I knew that I needed to, to still stay connected with Jesus somehow. And I, I was at that place in my walk, maybe some of you were there this morning, maybe you have been there, where I tried to kind of play both, right? Like one foot in the world, one foot doing what the world does, and one foot trying to figure out my walk with Jesus. So I was looking for a church, and at the time, I got really into uh, lifting weights, and I was at my gym, and I was talking with a friend of mine about Jesus. And as we were talking about Jesus in the gym, Another guy overheard us, and he came over, and he said, hey, are you Christian? And I said, yes. And he said, hey, so am I. I've got a church for you. I'd love to invite you to our church. And, and so I said yes because I was looking to get my faith together, right? And so I went, and it was a little interesting because the first thing I noticed that was different for me, uh, and granted, I hadn't had that much of church experience. The Sierra Bible as a kid was all I really knew. And so now I'm branching out, trying to find out what other churches are like, and I landed in this church. It was in a home. And I, I figured it was in a home because it wasn't big enough to quite be in a building yet. And while we're in this home, we sang songs, but there was no musical instruments, which was kind of interesting. But nonetheless, this was a group of younger people that I felt connected with. One of them, uh, like I said, was from the gym. He was an athlete. We had made a lot of connections. And then they said, hey, listen, we would love to do a Bible study with you. And I thought, what, what could that hurt? That could actually help. And they wanted to do it at my house. And they brought three guys and my buddy. So the guy that I first met and then three other dudes. 
And we sat down and we began to study the Bible together. And what they did is they started to take these pieces of Scripture out of context. And what they began to teach me was that if I was truly a Christian, uh, I would no longer sin. And so they started asking me questions. You know, did you, have you gotten drunk before? You know, yes, last week actually. Have you done this? Yes, last week actually, right? And they, they began to tell me that because I had done those things, and because I still was sinning, that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. That was the message. You, you have sin in your life, and if you really are a Christian, you won't have sin. No sin at all. <clears throat> and since you do, you're not saved, and you need to be saved. We would like to save you. And they began to then teach me, through cherry-picking of Scripture, that in order to be saved, I needed to be discipled, specifically by them. And that I also needed to be discipling others. And that unless I was discipled by them, and unless I was discipling others, I really wasn't saved. Now come to find out, uh, this particular uh, version of Christianity, and I say that lightly because it's not a version of Christianity at all, they, they, they wanted me to know that, in, that, first of all, they were the only true church in Reno. So it was kind of one of those deals, right? Like, they looked and said, the church of Ephesus, there's only one church, which if you study your Bible, you know there were multiple churches in Ephesus, multiple churches in Galatia, in, in these areas. It wasn't just one church, but they kind of manipulated. And there's only one true church in Truckee, one true church in Reno. It's the Church of Christ. That's what this movement was. <clears throat> I knew enough. My mom and the church had taught me enough to know that when it came to salvation, you only needed to put your faith in one person, and that person's Christ. It doesn't need to be another human being. It doesn't need to be another pastor. And so I knew that. And at 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, right, not as <laughs> mature as I am now. I say that comically. And I remember sitting there, and, and I had asked them specifically, this is where I landed. Are you telling me this? In order to be saved, I need Jesus and I need you to disciple me. And they said, yes. And I said, get out of my house. Leave. So they did. And because, you know, Reno, it's not a huge town, and I was living in Meadowood Mall apartments. Those apartments right there. It was a 24-hour fitness. That's why I moved there, so I could just, you know, mall, 24-hour fitness. What else do you need? And um, I would see them in the mall on occasion. I would see them in Reno, and they just ostracized me. They wouldn't look at me. They wouldn't talk to me. They stayed away from me. They blacklisted me. That was the witness of who they were. So I want to ask the question, if your faith was under duress, if your faith was being questioned, if someone asked you about what your life was like with Jesus, what was your life like without Jesus, what would be your response? How good of a witness would you be? We find ourselves in the text this morning in such a place where Peter has an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. But he's not a faithful witness. He's a faltering witness. He's not quite a false witness like those I just mentioned, but he is faltering. And in the text this morning, we find ourselves in another one of those, what we call Markin sandwiches, which is to say that, that Mark, now get this, right? This is what's really interesting. The believers in Mark, if you remember, they are being persecuted. Their witness for Christ is being questioned. Some of them are being dragged off because of their answers. They've been under trial, if you will. 
But Peter is going to go under trial as well. He's going to be asked three times, do you know this Messiah? And his witness is faltering, right? So this morning we're going to see we're going to see failing witnesses or false, wit- false witnesses, failing witnesses, and the true faithful witness. So let's pick up the story here this morning, and let's see how Peter responds under duress. And if you could this morning, as is our typical uh, way, would you stand with me as we just want to honor the Lord through the reading of Scripture? So if you're new, we usually stand when we read because we're just trying to position our bodies and our hearts in a place of saying, God, speak to me. And I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to backtrack a little bit into where Brad was at last week and then into the new section for this week. So jump to verse uh, 53, chapter 14. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made, and and with these hands, and within three days I'll build another one not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Jump down to verse 66. And Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant saw him again and began again to say to the bystanders, This man's one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Oh Lord, I pray that this story would help us to see who you are and how only you and you alone are the only true declaration of who God the Father is. May we see you clearly for who you are. In Jesus' name, the church said. You may be seated. Okay. Let's talk about the reality of false witnesses first. I don't know if you noticed it in the text, but essentially this is what's occurred. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that he's going to have to suffer and die for the sins of the world. So to prepare himself, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, a private garden, and he begins to pray. And before doing that, though, he actually went to his three closest disciples, Peter, right? Peter, who is the one who gave this testimony to Mark, and Mark is writing it. Peter, James, and John are told by Jesus as he enters in the garden, you you stay here and you watch and you pray. And so while his disciples are supposed to be praying and supposed to be readying themselves for what is about to come, Jesus is suffering. He's in the garden, and the garden is like hell to him. He is praying to the Lord. If there is any other way, Lord, let there be another way. But if not, 
he essentially prays, I surrender my entire will. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. And while he's out, uh, I'm sorry, while he's in the garden, the, the other three are outside, and what are they doing? What's Peter doing? They're asleep. Jesus finally gets up from his prayer. He and the Father in one accord. He is marching to his doom. He essentially basically walks straight up to Judas. Judas kisses him on the cheek, and Jesus now has been and is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now in this trial that Jesus is going to go through before the Sanhedrin and the high priests, it is a farce of a trial. First of all, they take him to Caiaphas' house, the high priest. Upon doing so, they begin to basically make a mockery of not only Scripture, but their entire legal system. See, the Jews had this view from God that they are to be a people of justice, a people of truth, a people who know the difference between right and wrong, and when it comes down to doing something hard, they're going to choose to do the right thing over the hard thing, regardless of what the situation is. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. Deuteronomy is called the second giving of the law, basically. This is God speaking to his people, forming his people to be a light to all of the world. Basically, God is saying, I have chosen you, my Hebrews, to show the world who I truly am. And in order to do that, this is God's commandment to his peoples, right? To his people. Listen, you shall appoint judges and officers in all of the towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. That's good. Verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Then, as if it was written to Judas, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. Do that which is only right. Do that which is correct so that you can inherit the land and you can live with the Lord your God in the land that he's giving you. Right? This is just one segment. But basically, the, all of Torah is about how do we operate well as people. And there are at least seven violations in Jesus going to trial that we see within this text. At least seven. There's probably many, many more. First of all, let's just... Uh, let's just try to wrap our minds around this reality. So Jesus is being taken to the high priestly court to go under trial, and the hope is to, to kill him. Right? He, he's, he's being tried for something he didn't do. Now, have you ever, what, what is the, um, there's a law for it. I can't remember the name. You can't be tried twice for something. Double jeopardy? See, I knew it. Got it before you did. <laughs> Double jeopardy. Well, Jesus has six trials. Six. First, he's taken to Annas. Annas is the former high priest. He's called the high priest, but he's not the high priest. Right? Because remember, the, the Hebrews are basically in captivity to the Roman Empire. So they've kind of been neutered in their power. And so Annas, who was this former high priest, much like the president, right? Every president that's ever existed, we call them Mr. President still, even though they're no longer sitting president. Same way with a high priest, the high pastor, if you will, of the Hebrews. Once a priest, always a priest. So Annas had power and is actually the one with all of the power. 
The Romans came in and said, essentially, you have too much power. Delegate your power out. So he did. So he delegates his power to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. No nepotism here, right? But that's a good way to ensure that you still have power, isn't it? Right? Uh, Wesley's here. He's my brother-in-law, so we'll use him as an example, right? You're in charge, Wesley. Here's all the power, but not really. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with you if you do anything you're not supposed to do. So first he's drawn to Annas, then he's taken to Caiaphas, then to the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court for the Hebrews. Three trials, all within the same night. Now remember, the Hebrews were basically enslaved to the Romans. They, they were in captivity. They could not dish out capital punishment. They couldn't put someone to death. They needed Roman authority to do that. So then they ship him off from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin, off to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want, he's like, Pilate's basically like, I don't want anything to do with this. So he sends him to Herod. And Herod's like, I don't want to deal with this. So he ships him back to Pilate for another court. Uh, and he washes his hands and he says, I have nothing to do with this. Yet he sends him to death. The, the trials are a farce. The false witness is, is, is above and beyond anything that you could imagine. Let me give you at least seven things, seven reasons, according to even scripture, that we know that these false witnesses were manip manipulating the whole deal. Number one, Jesus was arrested without a charge. He has no representation. He has no one to represent him. He stands alone. Number two, the Sanhedrin could not consider a capital offense on a feast day. It's Passover, so they're in violation of that. Number three, you cannot make a final judgment at night or outside the sacred chambers. Are they in the sacred chambers? No, they're at Caiaphas's house. Number four, condemnation of death requires unanimous testimony of at least two witnesses. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but how well did these witnesses agree? Do you see it? Look at verse 56. But many, okay, they're throwing a farce of a trial at night between basically 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. And they have found witnesses, probably paid witnesses, brought them into Caiaphas' house to bear witness against Jesus. And the text tells us that they were not true witnesses, they were false witnesses. And against him, their testimony, it says in verse 56, did not agree. So there is not two or more gathered here that agree. And in fact, it talks about the temple as part of the testimony. So I could just imagine these false witnesses. One gets up and says, yeah, I was there. And Jesus talked about their temple. You know the temple that you guys are in charge of? And Jesus said he's going to tear it down. But he's going to build it again. What's the accusation? He's a terrorist. Jesus is going to blow things up. And then another guy comes up to the stand. And he's like, yeah, I heard that too, but I think it was metaphorical. I can't be certain. But either way, they're not agreeing. So again, they're in violation. Number five, Caiaphas resorts to leading the witness, asking Jesus to incriminate himself. You can't do that. He literally says, and this is what's it's interesting to me if you take a look at it, what does the high priest ask him? Look at verse 61. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed. So what's interesting now is 
Do you remember, if you remember all through Mark, every character in Mark is trying to figure out who Jesus is. Right? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? At one point, the only one who really declares who Jesus is in Mark is the Roman centurion. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Someone who shouldn't believe, someone who's on, a, on the out, someone who's at a distance, he knew exactly who Jesus was, even while everyone else was trying to figure out who Jesus is. Now again in Mark, the second clearest proclamation of who Jesus is comes not from Peter, not from the other disciples, but the high priest with the question, are you the Christ? And Jesus responds with what? I am. That should take you all the way back to Genesis and every place in the book of John where God says, say that I am is the one who sent you. I am that I am. This is Jesus declaring as a true witness, I'm the Christ. But yet, they lead the witness, and if that wasn't enough, two more, and then we'll continue on. The Sanhedrin had a policy. To be fair, this might sound familiar for you gun owners, you had to wait at least two days if you were going to kill someone before you did it. There was a cooling off period, right? So instead of waiting, they make this thing move on the fast track. And then lastly, number seven, blasphemy needed to include the charge of cursing God's name, something Jesus never did. But that's essentially what they're accusing him of. And the punishment, according to Scripture, was not crucifixion. It was being stoned to death. What is the lesson that we learn from these false witnesses? A faithless false witness will lie no matter what the facts are. Notice what these false witnesses later do. Notice what they've done to him as it, as it kind of... Uh, as it heightens within its, its just ugliness. Look at verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face. This is what false witnesses do. This is what a false witness will do. To the story I mentioned earlier, they will malign and take Jesus and change the image of who he is. A false witness will say, you need man involved in this. A false witness will say, you need organized religion in this. A false witness will say, you need to do good works and good, de good deeds to get to heaven. They will malign and change the true image of Jesus Christ. That's their goal. So not only will they lie no matter what, they'll also manipulate and distort Scripture. I read to you De Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. These men do not care to adhere to Scripture. They're not about God. They're not about Yahweh. They're about themselves. Why is Caiaphas and Annas ultimately unhappy and frustrated? Because Jesus has messed with their wallet book. Now, can we just side Eddie into this a little bit that that's why some people don't want to become Christians because they're afraid that God might start messing with their money? Can I just be honest with you and tell you, if you accept Christ as your Savior, he indeed is going to start messing with your checkbook. But what does he say? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Basically, what Jesus is saying is just open up your checking account and just look at where you spend your money. It tells you everything you need to know about you. So these men wanted to hide the image of God, mar the image of God, lie about who God is, and distort Scripture. And the truth is that these individuals still exist. I'm not doing a good pastoral job for our church if I don't say, be careful about what you view. Be careful about who you listen to. 
Be cautious. Study the real thing. If you want to know who a false witness is, you have to focus on the true and only faithful witness that is Jesus, who is stuck in the middle of this Mark and Sandwich, right? You have false witness, then you have the faithful witness. Look at verse 62. Um, I'm sorry, go back. Verse 61. Jesus is the only faithful witness. But he remained silent. He made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you Christ? And he answered, I am. Jesus shares unapologetically who he is. You see, all Jesus has to do to escape death is recant. All he has to say is, I'm not him. But instead, he shares exactly who he is. I am. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one who can forgive you of your sins. Oh, to the Jews, I am your king. You see, Jesus is under trial, yeah? He's at trial. It's a false trial, but he is under trial. But notice what he says about this trial. I love it. I think it's so good. Look at what he says in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, there's the declaration, and then he says something really interesting here. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Why would he say that? Are you at all reading that and going, Jesus is under trial, he's about to die, and what he says is really weird, right? Imagine you're about to be hanged, you're about to die, and you say, don't worry, you'll see me in the clouds, sitting with power. What, what is he saying? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's saying there's a great reversal coming. He's saying, you have me under trial now. This is what Jesus is saying, but I'm coming back and it will be you who is under trial. Right now, I will take the trial. I will take the judgment. I, I will take the pain that is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But there is a day coming. Don't be mistaken. There's a day coming, and he's letting them know it. Even though he looks like he's helpless, even though it looks like he's being punished and he's a victim, he's surely telling us as the readers and all of the high priests and those who are in the Sanhedrin, the reversal's coming. And it's going to be me that judges. And as you guys sit in little Caiaphas's house, in little Caiaphas's kingdom, my kingdom's going to come. And it's going to be visible for all to see. Because my kingdom's a lot bigger than Caiaphas's kingdom. These are all subtle messages that Jesus is using in the moment to not only teach truth, but to get them so angry and frustrated at the true image of God, they want to kill him and murder him. I mean, it's just like, Someone gambling, right? And he just keeps throwing the chips all in. I know it's got to happen, so I might as well keep poking the bear. Well, what's the lesson we learn about Jesus' witness? A faithful witness will tell the truth no matter what the consequences. If you want to represent who Jesus is, my friends, uncover the face of Christ in your life. Uncover all the places where you're trying to him, hide him. Don't, don't mute that voice. Don't hide your Christianity. Let that Christianity, let your relationship be declared to the entire world around you. Let people know that you stand for Jesus because Jesus stood for you. Revelation 1.5 of this Christ says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He's the only faithful witness. And again, this trial goes from shameful and unjust to just downright ugly. They spit on him. They cover his face and they beat him and they mock him. 
This man that Acts tells us was a man that, that was filled with the Spirit and filled with power. Acts 10, I think it's Acts 10, yeah, it tells us that, that he, Jesus, went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil. This man does not deserve death. This man does not deserve condemnation. He does not deserve the betrayal. He doesn't deserve his best friends abandoning him. He definitely doesn't deserve Peter to be following at a distance. So the sandwich is like this. You have the faithless witness, the false witness. They'll lie. They'll do anything to distort the image of God and who God is. Be careful. Be aware. Study the authenticity of of the real faithful witness that is Jesus. Right, have you heard the saying before? How does a, uh, someone really know a counterfeiter? How do they know if, if money's counterfeit or not? Have you heard this before? I don't know if it's true or not, but they say don't study the fake. They study the real thing. And they study the real thing, and they study the real thing, so that way when the fake comes along, they can spot it. And it's, I would encourage the same way. You have to look at the face of Christ. Look at Jesus who is in this place and he is being judged wrongfully. Look to Jesus and study the real thing so that way when the world comes with its secular music and its secular message and its secular TV shows and its secular Facebook and secular Instagram and secular Twitter and secular this and secular that, it's all images from the world and messages from the world constantly berating you. How do you fight such indoctrination? You have to spend time with your Savior. Church, I, I can't say it any other way. I'm probably going to say it for the next 20 years of my life. You've got to learn to read your Bible. You've got to learn to study it. You've got to start to develop a taste for sermons and messages and, and who God is so that Jesus is real to you, that you don't ever or are never guilty of marring that image of God. What do I got to do? To convince you, man, if this text doesn't do it, I don't know that there ever will be one that does it. Because in that sandwich, we go from false witness to faithful witness to Peter as the faltering witness. Remember I asked the question, if you were under trial, how would you do? Here's the reality of the text. False witness, faithful witness, faltering witness. Both of these need this. The faltering witness needs the faithful witness that is Jesus, and false witnesses need to repent and, and fall in love with the true faithful witness. It's sandwiched in here, so we could take a look at Peter and ask the question, well, well Peter, who is a faltering witness, I don't want to be a faltering witness, but, 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 I do want to become like Peter. Have you, come on, that, I think that's fair. How many times have you heard Peter get the bad rap? At the same time, Peter shows us that if as long as you encounter God and you sin, which you'll do, get back up and keep serving the Lord, right? Let's just, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. What do we find Peter doing as a faltering witness first and foremost? It's in chapter 14, verse 54, and also in verse 67. He's followed at a distance. He gets to the house. Now, it's in the text, and it's kind of hidden. It's the same way in some of the other Gospels. He's at Caiaphas's house. Jesus is under duress. He's being questioned in Caiaphas's house. What's hidden in the text is Peter's also at Caiaphas's house. Did you catch it? But he's below. The word below is in there. But he's in the courtyard. 
And somehow, someway, whether it was through transportation or, or, or through the, through the uh, courtyard or whether G- Jesus was seen in through the house, Peter can see what's happening. He can hear what's going on. And what we find Peter doing in both chapter 14, 54, and 67 is he's warming himself. He's comforting himself. Have you been guilty of this crime? Have you been guilty of this sin, which is to miss the mark? That when life gets hard, you comfort yourself? You warm yourself at the fires of the world? This is what Peter's doing. The Gospel Coalition came out with a wonderful article about the two kind of uh, two pitfalls on each side of the pendulum that we have a tendency to fall in in our world, two different idols. And so the first one is what we call comfort culture. What Peter's doing, warming himself at the fire. By culture, by comfort culture, they define it this way. We mean Netflix binging, online gaming, hours of Candy Crush. If you're playing that, why? I don't know. Scrolling Instagram reels, fantasy sports, self-indulgent Amazon sprees, foodie culture addiction, all comfy couch consolations to fill the meaning gap. Essentially, comfort culture is consumerism and late modernity, and it's a form of spiritual transcendence. Essentially, what the article says is that, that one of the biggest lies, biggest gods in our world when things get hard and things get tough is just comfort thyself. Warm yourself with the fire. Now, what I enjoyed about the article, which I think is true, is they said you have those who are part of the comfort culture, but you also have those who fall into the other error called the hustle and grind culture or ideology what is that working hard challenging yourself never giving up grind until you win don't just work hard man work really hard pursue the future vision of yourself through relentless self-improvement it's funny because if you watch any kind of if you're just in any kind of like social media you'll see both of these right comfort yourself Buy the thing, right? My wife and I are in the market to purchase a new vehicle soon. That's all I needed to say, right? I said, well, let's look at a vehicle. Next thing you know, my wife and I and our, our, all of our social media feeds, advertisement for every kind of car there exists, right? Why? Because the little demon in your pocket listens to you. <laughs> and then it whispers back to you, buy this, you'll be happy. It knows what you're thinking better than you do. I hate it. So we have this ability. And Peter does it three times, but notice the progression. Denial one, he's by the fire. And he gives a complete denial. I don't know what you're talking about. That's his first thing as a faltering witness. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But then he moves farther away. Did you notice that? Did you notice that at one point he's at the fire, the next he moves outside of the courtyard. He has distanced himself from Christ and the one who's asking the question. And then he says, I don't belong to him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't belong to him. He's not a family member. He's not a savior. He's not a Messiah. He has been guilty of what so many of us are guilty of, which is to think, that if I move further away from such trial and tribulation, life will get better. If I just change my location, the pressure will stop. Can I just say to all of us, I've said it before, California still needs Christians. 
I just want to make sure you agree with that. California still needs missionaries. Are you going to be one? I hope so. Denial three is the boldest of all the denials. He can't even say Jesus' name in the third denial. I don't even know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't belong to him. I don't know him. And if that's not enough, he then curses Jesus, it says. Now, now let me be careful here because I'm not a Greek. Uh, that word, see? I'm so not a Greek scholar, I don't even know the word scholar. But in the Greek, what I have gathered from those who are smarter than me is that they have added, those who interpret, they have added in here that he called the curse upon himself. But that's not what he's done. Once asked if Jesus is his homeboy, upon the third request, Peter curses the Lord. I don't know that guy. He says something about Jesus that probably should have never been said. Now, if I'm wrong and he calls a curse upon himself, which is, may I die if I know this guy? Does it really matter whether it's upon himself or upon Jesus? Both are as equally bad. Both are unhealthy. Both are sad. Peter has shown us that he is willing to boast a lot and listen little. I mean, Jesus did say he was going to do this, and he's forgotten. We also recognize the danger that Peter has fallen into because Jesus went into this situation unprepared, didn't he? Right? Jesus is able to be the faithful witness before the, the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and Annas because that guy went to the Lord in prayer and he heard from his father and he was so sure because of what he heard from God, he was able to march to his doom, march to his death and take on a punishment that he didn't deserve. There are two trials going on here. Do you see it? Jesus is under trial. He's done nothing wrong and he's not guilty and he will be punished. Peter is under trial. And by the way, is he really under trial? Who's questioning him? A little servant girl. And for all we know, the servant girl could have meant it as a compliment. Hey, are you the one who knows Jesus? And he denies it. I don't know him. We see Peter's fear of man here has overtaken him. He's worried about what she thinks or what others will think. So he curses the Lord. And then we find in some of the other Gospels these really hard things that are hard to read if I'm honest with you it's hard to read it's hard to to not look at Peter and think how could you why would you he's being questioned but you know what Luke chapter 22 tells us about it oh man Peter's down in the courtyard he's looking up Luke 22 tells us that upon Peter's third denial, Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. He looks at Peter. And then it tells us here in Mark that upon that gaze, he falls down and he weeps. Can I ask this question? 
They say that, what is it, 80 or 90% of what we say is nonverbal? What do you think Jesus was saying to Peter? I can't believe you, Peter. Do you think as he was standing there bound, he looked at Peter as he denied him the third time and gave him one of these parental... You know that parental look, right? I know it really well. It's the, you shouldn't do that, and I am disgusted with you. Not my child. You think that's what he gave him? No, man. He gave Peter the eye of, I'm still for you. I still love you. I will forgive you. I will carry you forward. See, there's two trials. Peter fails miserably, but Jesus wins. Why are the two trials important? Because you need to understand that Jesus is your advocate. He he is what we call our substitute. See, the two trials exist there. Jesus is under trial for something he didn't do. He's under trial for everything you did. And Jesus will march all the way to his death to pay the cost and you will stand in that courtyard and you will be judged and, and God will, will put you under trial. But because of what Jesus has done, you will march to your freedom, just like Barabbas. He's your advocate. He is the one who is your substitute. He has taken your place. And the reality is, is if you're going to do Christianity in this world and you're going to do it well, whatever well looks like, you have to know this reality because you're going to slip, you're going to fall, you're going to cuss, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to warm yourself by your own fire. And if you don't see that Jesus forgives you and that his long-suffering is what brings us to repentance, that's why he weeps. He finally repents because Jesus has shown him incredible love. And at one point in time, Peter's sitting there and he's warming himself by the fire and then he's under fire and he fails being under fire, but Jesus never fails being under fire. Once Peter finally got that, he's emboldened and he gets in the book of Acts and he begins to preach the word of God in such a powerful way that thousands of people come before him. You know, God wants to use you. And some of you are in here and you've got the gall to say, well, you can't use me, I'm a sinner. That's why he is gonna use you. See, Peter wasn't going to be Peter without all of his Peterness. You with me? The reason Peter was able to speak so boldly is because his boldness was never on his own accord, but on Jesus' accord. Which rock do you stand on? If it's on your own goodness, it'll fail. Your rock will break. It'll shatter. But if it's on the rock that is Christ, I can only preach to you this morning because of his good standing, not because of all the good things I've done, but because God sees me hidden in Christ. How could I not get up each morning and say, you gotta follow this guy because he can do what you cannot do. Let me close with this. John 21. Do you remember it? It's important. It's been an important part of Peter's story. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead because he alone defeats death. The disciples think he's dead. So what do they do? 
They go back to their old lifestyle like a dog returns to their vomit. They get into their boat. They go out to the sea, and they go fishing because that's what they have always known as fishermen. They have forgotten again the words of God that they are to be fishers of men. Have you ever done that? I've been guilty of that, man. That's like another warming yourself by the fire moment. So Jesus comes while they're out fishing. And what I love about Jesus, right, he's not like the, the parent out there going, hey, guys, I'm here. No, no, no. He, he prepares breakfast for him. He's on the beach, and he's preparing breakfast for his men who have all abandoned him. You remember last week, two weeks ago? Who abandoned him? All, everybody. And so he creates their breakfast. He makes it. Peter sees it, jumps out of the boat, comes swimming. They all come toward him. Jesus eventually takes Peter off to the side. You remember this? And he says to Peter, he says to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, I love you. And then he says, do you love me? And he says, you know, I love you. And he says, do you love me? And then he gets sad. And he says, you know, I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Remember the story? Some of you know, you know where I'm going. What's lost in the original language? Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me with a God kind of love, a perfect love, a divine love? And Peter, for the first time, says, I phileo you. He humbles himself. He He fell three times. Now he's being honest all three times. God says, do you love me? Let me ask you, church, do you love him? Do you love him with a divine love? Do you love him with a perfect love? Do you love him with a godly love? Or do you love him like Peter? Phileo love. It's imperfect, but I'm capable of it. Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter responds, I'm sorry, do you agapeo me? Peter responds, I phileo you. Jesus a third time, Peter, do you love me with the kind of love I know you're capable of? Do you love me with a phileo love? I know it's not an agape love. I'm adding a little bit here. But essentially, God knows you don't have agape love, church. You have phileo love. Peter, do you have that kind of love for me? And Peter hangs his head and he weeps just like he did here. And he says, you know I phileo you. And then this is God's word to Peter and it's God's word to you as the church. Go represent me. Now you're usable. When you thought you had it all together, when you thought you were brash and you talked about how great you were and you talked about how you are going to die for me and you talked about how loyal you were, you had no chance in this world. You were going to fall because God can do nothing with pride. But as soon as Peter knew that his righteousness stood 100% on Jesus Christ, he could go represent Jesus. And that's the truth for you. You do not need to be perfect. You just need to know the perfect one. And you keep pointing people to him. We are all faltering witnesses. I pray none of us are false witnesses. We're all pointing to the one who's the true faithful witness. He and he alone gets us to where we're going. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people that are part of this faith family, Lord. You have brought them here. You desire to minister to them, and you desire to use them. This morning, Lord, I don't want a moment to go by without praying for those that I know are hurting this morning and are frustrated. Some of your children are here this morning, Lord, and they are they're hurting. Yeah, Lord, they're, they're wanting to know what it is that you want to say in this moment. Would you speak to them? Without any doubt in my mind, Lord, I know that there are people who are here this morning that have sin in their life and they want to deal with it. Lord, would you empower them 
to mortify their sin, that they could live unto righteousness. Some of us need encouragement, Lord. May we leave here with a greater smile on our face because you have won the day. Some of us, Lord, need a rebuke. May we see that as an invitation into your arms and not as just discipline. Lord, all of these things are a work that only you can accomplish, which brings all of this, all, the whole point home, Lord. All we need is you, nothing else. Help us to be true witnesses to you, Lord, even though we falter along the way. We trust you'll do it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. God bless you.